Angie for breakfast. Thanks for stopping by. It's Extra Angie for Breakfast, and you're definitely getting extra today. You see a delightful man by the name of Seamus, who is a Dunsborough resident, came to the studio to talk to me about his production. It is actually this coming weekend, which is the 23rd and 24th of October. And if you want to catch it, it's at the Dunsborough Hall. But he was just such a character. You know, just those people that live amongst us that you like would want to read their book or listen to their podcast. Well, I took the opportunity, now that we're doing this whole podcast thing, to have a really long conversation about Seamus and the way his life has taken him from the housing estates of Dublin through to the stages of the world. I can't wait to see what you think about this one. Thank you so much for visiting Extra Angie for breakfast. This is really special for me. I've told you before that I'm new to the podcast scene and I've been dipping my toe, trying to work out what people want to hear, what they want to know, like what you want to know, like what do you want to listen to and spend your time on. And I thought this one is, this one's special uh, because I've had the absolute pleasure of meeting choreographer and world-renowned dancer Seamus Hughes, who resides now in Dunsborough. Thanks for joining me. Oh, it's an absolute Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me, Andy. Andy. So we got the opportunity to chat to you because you're actually putting on a show in October. So let's plug the show first. Yes, well, it's called Dance of Life. And as it expresses, I use the dancers' lives as the basis for creating the choreography. And uh, I do all the visuals myself. And uh, um, I'm actually dancing. I'm 80 years old now. So I've decided to pull on the old tights and have a go. That's wonderful. (laughs) Well, let's rewind now and go back to the start because I think it's fair to say that, Seamus, you grew up on the mean streets of Dublin. That's right. The school of hard knocks. Like big time, like concrete jungle, housing estates, like... Absolutely. Then people would like to draw the similarity between you and Billy Elliot, but that's not fair. Well, it, it is to an extent. I mean, I did have the alcoholic father who didn't want me to dance, but of course, well, he actually didn't even know what I was doing. He couldn't care less. So I did have that sort of background. And the actual struggle, the socioeconomic struggle, I had to be working in order to pay for lessons. There was nobody going to actually pay for any lessons for me at that time, right? So I was an apprentice printer at the time. Then I could actually pay for my lessons. And that's really how I started. And then I won a scholarship to London. That was my big break. Wow. Well, we'll get to that. What I want to hear about is the moment that dance and music captured you. Yep. Well, as I said, uh, I was listening a little bit to music like uh, Benny Goodman, that sort of thing. My, my, my best friend was a clarinet player and his father was in a dance band. So I was hearing all that sort of um, uh, in the mood and uh, this sort of music and swing and stuff. And you yeah, begin to be a little bit educated in music. And uh, he, he had a sister who was actually a lovely girl and she was a dancer. And he said, oh, you have to come and see my sister performing on Saturday afternoon. So I donned the Sunday jacket over the uh, overalls from the printing press, thinking I was thinking, I must have smelled absolutely dreadful. Because <laughs> when I walked in there and I smelled the perfumes and the talcs and this lovely wafting music, and particularly those beautiful girls like flowers floating around in space, 
I thought, well, one of the biggest uh, impacts for me was that uh, there was, um, would you call it, a gentleman who was rather effete. And he was sort of trying to uh, lift a girl. And I thought, oh, my God, could I lift that girl around? I thought, oh, this is for me. <laughs> <laughs> There's a twinkle in this man's eye, I'll tell you that. <laughs> so you fancied yourself on stage um, dancing and yes, being a, a part of that magic that is, you know, live performance. That's correct, yeah. yeah. And it was a Tchaikovsky song that you were listening to, wasn't a it? Tchaikovsky piece of music, yeah, yeah. Never yeah. heard in the uh, in the estates of Dublin before. De- definitely never. <laughs> <laughs> so from that moment... Um, you started paying for lessons. That's correct, yeah. How did you get your scholarship? Um, some people from the company, from English National Ballet, were visiting from, from London, and they came to the studio. I mean, they're always looking for, for especially boys, because uh, there's hundreds of girls, and it's rather unfortunate how few women can make it. You know, I always say, if you look at a class of girls... Of a hundred girls, one of those girls is only going to make it. I find that rather sad, and that actually put me off teaching. That to actually, you know, be taking money from people and sort of being nice to their parents and everything, and you knowing deep down that only one of these people are going to make it. I find that's a really rather sad. Whereas for boys, of course, they encourage boys and they need boys. And I was rather a, a sort of dramatic type of dancer, yeah, very dramatic because I didn't have much technique. But I love being on stage. <laughs> well, how old were you when you took your interest in dancing? Well, uh, I was 15 when I started. 15. And so before that, I'm sure it was just kicking the ball around. In the uh, well, absolutely. Well, of course, I love soccer. And I was lucky. I was physically fit from r- running, actually running for messages most of the time for my mother. I was the messenger boy in the house and uh, generally playing. In, so actually, when I played soccer, they said... You, you play soccer a little bit like a dancer. And then when I started to dance, I said, oh, we can see that you were a footballer. Yes, <laughs> Can't win. <laughs> so now we're in London and yes. the career starts taking off. Yeah. And it wasn't that easy. I mean, I, I was a, a real paddy, you know, from from the country. Oh, and it, just in case people aren't aware, um, <laughs> back in the day... Uh, there was a bit of trouble between uh, old Blighty and Ireland that people sort of forget about these days or, you know, especially Australians aren't necessarily quite aware of. So being Irish in London was a thing in itself. Well, it, well, it was. And uh, even to the extent that, uh, I hate to use the word, but it could be quite racist. I remember uh, after about two weeks in the dressing room getting changed to do my classes and somebody had written on thing, go home, Paddy, written on my... Uh, where I would put my uh, jacket. And uh, I thought, but I found out who it was. Actually, believe it or not, it was a Jewish boy. Oh, well, yeah. you would feel like they would know better <laughs> for I, I, discriminating I, people well, on their people, countries. People never learn, and it's really sad how these sort of things continued. But, yeah, there was a sort of racism, but it certainly didn't put me off in any way. <laughs> uh, fire in your belly. That's you knew right. what you wanted. That's true. So what is one of the most standout performances you've ever done in your life? Oh, God, there's so many now, it's hard to think. But sometimes the the real excitement, when I went into, eventually after about 12 years, I got into one of the biggest companies in Europe. And that was really exciting. So to be in the middle of Romeo and Juliet, the Prokofiev Ballet, yeah, 
and uh, to be dancing in, 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 with the swords fighting in the first scene and the second scene of like a carnival where the music, I would just absolutely go crazy because it was like the sum total of all my training and all my life suddenly was in that music, yeah. And he, so it was something small like that rather than some of the bigger things I did that really said, oh, now I've arrived. This is absolutely wonderful. Oh. What a moment. Thanks yeah. for taking us back there. So how did we end up in West Australia? Well, lots of different reasons. Um, I had my career in in in, uh, uh, in Europe and then I became a contemporary dancer because the body starts falling apart around 30. <laughs> Tell know. me about it. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I actually didn't, of course. Uh, uh, I never stopped. I, I never knew. I didn't know what a weekend was, yeah. So because I had to catch up so much, I trained every single day. And uh, by the time I was 30, you know, uh, there was cracks and strains in the body. But I began to be... I suppose a little bit clever that I knew what the next step was. So I started to do yoga and Tai Chi, uh, learning to work with the body in a very different way so I actually could turn it into a a more contemporary body. And what was nice then, I could go back to what they call pedestrian movements, like running and walking and actually choreographing from that rather than from the more stylized way of actually creating ballet, which is enormously stylized and there's only sort of one way to do it. Whereas, you know, in contemporary, you can start to walk, you fall down on the ground, you pick yourself up and dust yourself off and start all over again. (laughs) (laughs) And what made you move to Western Australia? Um, We, my wife at that time, yeah, was Spanish and uh, we came to Sydney first in 1977 and we started to teach in Sydney. I was teaching drama at the drama school there and then we were invited to Melbourne and then WAPA was opening, and so we were both in, invited to be some of the first teachers of WAPA. That's fantastic! Yeah. So WAPA is the West Australian Academy of Performing Arts, and mm. it's a very well-respected institution. In fact, people, you know, always want to compare it to NIDA, but there's, you know, that's the Sydney one, and then we've got our WAPA, and, you know, you've got people like Hugh Jackman that came through WAPA. That's true, that's yeah. true. So you're one of the first teachers there. Yeah, yeah, I was one of the first ones. And, it, it you know, it started in, in quite a humble way, you know, and, and then it actually did get very big. But I love the sort of feeling and the attitude of people who say, oh, you're a teacher at WAPA. Well, they forget what you've actually had to do before you became a teacher at WAPA. This is so true. <laughs> um, did you see anyone through your classes that we might know their name? Well, Hugh Jackman did pass through, yeah. Your Just, class? Yeah. What? Yeah, you, you, yeah, at one point. He actually is a great mover. He's well, a great dancer. We know. He's yeah. the triple threat, singing, yeah. dancing, acting, yeah. and all-round good guy. Yeah, but what people forget is, yeah, he is the all-round good guy. He came in with such an enormous talent to begin with. Yeah. It was just sort of brushing up. And, and he had so much charm and he was such a nice person. And you say, that guy, he's going to do it. And of course he did in a big way. And I'm delighted for him. He's a lovely person. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, yeah. So we're at Whopper now. We're a teacher. Uh, let's fast forward again to how you found yourself in Dunsborough. Um. I went back to live, uh, when my marriage broke up, uh, and I went back to live in Europe because I met a Swiss lady. And uh, so I was living in Switzerland for the last, uh, for 15 years. And uh, I sort of uh, 
he gave up uh, working with dance because I work in art as well and I developed my, my, my artistic side and uh, I just got a bit fed up working with dancers, not because of the dancers, but trying to find money to pay them because I did have a company in Perth for about 10 years called Fieldworks Performance Group. And it was an experimental group. We, we did site-specific performances. And we were seen as real outsiders and supported for that as well by the Australia Council and the Local Arts Council. So we did about 10 years of that. But after about 10 years, you know, people began to see what my little tricks were. And uh, the, uh, actually what happened is personal politics came into it, yeah. Uh, that's and that's shame. usual. But 10 years is very good for an experimental company. But it was the end of that. It was the end of my marriage. And it appears it could be the end of me as well. But I picked myself up, dusted myself off and started all over again. <laughs> well, we've started again a few times. <laughs> yeah, you have to do that. That's you it. do. So now we're back in Europe and we've yes. got a new lady in our life. Yes, that's right. So living in Switzerland, um, a very clean place. I got a chance to actually go more into art and, and particularly literature because I'm very interested in James Joyce, the Irish writer. Oh, do you know what? I remember a very rocky bus trip when I was a backpacker. I was on a bus going from Croatia to Bosnia and yeah. I was reading Ulysses. Yes. And there was somebody who was probably not uh, fit for public transport uh, sitting next to me and the bus driver was really really abrupt and he came over to me and he says, you come here. And I was like, oh my God, did I not buy the right ticket? Like, have I done something wrong? You know, yeah. English, there wasn't a lot of uh, English spoken. And yeah. he just, he just brought me up the front of the bus. He said, don't sit there, sit there. And he told me to sit in a different seat. Right. And then there were these two English boys behind me who saw me reading Ulysses and they yeah. were like, what are you reading that? Oh, and of course. That was sorry. You just brought all of that story back to me. So, no, it, James it, Joyce. <laughs> but it's even interesting when you mention Croatia, because on my way down to Croatia about uh, eight years ago to meet my brother, we go to Trieste. Now, Ulysses was based on a character from Trieste. Oh, so that's the uh, starting point. So, uh, and actually, Joyce had actually taught English in Croatia. What? Yeah, in the Berlitz School, yeah. What did we say before we started this? Synchronicities. Synchronicity. It's amazing how things connect up and uh, how things synchronize, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we were saying before we started recording that I've lived in Ireland. Um, I, I've traveled through Dublin a couple of times. I lived in Kenmare in Kerry and I lived in Cork City as well. And I've got who I call my twin brother is a fellow called mm. Lorcan from Armagh. Right. And he is born on the same day, same year, both of us to a woman called Ursula. Yes. Which is not a common name. And we met in Greece doing turtle conservation. I was there because I thought living in a tent on a beach in Greece sounds like a whole pile of fun. And he was there because oh, he's he's got a brilliant mind. Like he's got a brilliant like maths yes, mind. Yes, yep. And he was just like, Mm, living in a tent in Greece with loads of chicks around sounds like fun. So that's how we met. Right. And uh, I was saying that, uh, yeah, he's like my twin brother and he's Irish, but you've got an actual twin. Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she's in Canada, far away from me. <clears throat> yes, we, we and we're very different. Yeah, well, synchronicity is all over the place. Um, but we've, we've got a bit off track here. You were talking about your literature and your love for James Joyce. Yes. And yeah. you're in uh, Europe. 
so I'm in Europe and uh, the James Joyce Centre so the best collection of his writings and memorabilia is actually in Zurich at the James Joyce Centre because that's actually where he died and where he's buried oh. yeah Ireland didn't accept him for a long time as soon as they could make loads of money from tourism uh, they began to want to exhume his body and take his heart back to Ireland yeah I mean that's it's, it's, it's what people do, isn't it's it? It's what people, so now you have the joint, uh, James Joyce Centre, and you do have um, a, a sculpture of him actually very close to the very centre of Dublin, where, where Nelson's Pillar used to be, and there he is standing there with the stick, yeah. And of course, in Dublin, where they're not always very kind, they call him the prick with the stick. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's meant lovingly. <laughs> so endearingly. <laughs> Something like that. Um, and so you focused on your litera- literature and you developed your artistic streak. What sort of medium were you in there? I, I, I worked mostly. Uh, uh, so it wouldn't be surprising in being Irish. I, I, I'm very interested in what's called anti-art, yeah? I find uh, that most art is far too s- snobbish. Yeah, so I could go back into uh, doing anti-art and I worked a lot in collage. So you could put a big head on top of a small body and uh, you could put chickens running around and thing in, into a collage. Yeah. So I, I concentrated a lot on collage and I was very influenced by the Dada movement, which actually originated in Zurich in the Cabaret Voltaire. Oh, you'll have to catch me up on the Dada movement. Oh, well, it started in 1916. It was an anti-war uh, movement. So the artists, uh, they went completely against what that First World War was about and they got in Zurich. Now, quite an extraordinary thing too. And um, I believe that uh, Joyce was living there at that time so he would have went to Dada performances and the way he breaks up language in Finnegan's Wake, I feel he actually got that from the Dada. And living around the corner from the Cabaret Voltaire was Lenin before he went back to Russia Ooh. to do the revolution. So, you know, it's a very interesting time and Cause, because Switzerland was neutral and a lot of the great artists came to actually live in Zurich at that time. This is amazing. Um, so, again, how did we end up from Zurich to Dunsborough? <laughs> <laughs> Well, of course, now Dunsborough is the most beautiful place. When I was living in Switzerland, my present wife, we'd come to, I have three children in, in Perth. And so we would come to see the children as much as I could. Uh, and we started to come down here and, uh, oh, we just fell in love with the southwest and uh, lovely around, you know, Castle Rock. And because uh, uh, I'm, I'm a rock person, so I actually love rocks. I completely understand this. We can talk about rocks in a moment. I'll write a little note for myself. We'll come back to some of your favourite rocks around West Australia. Um, So you made the decision to come back to the West to be with family? Yeah. And of course we do it. uh, uh, Again, we're very alternative. We are actually house sitters. We don't own a place. And uh, because, if I may say so, I don't really want to uh, advertise it here on on a special sort of type of radio but we're so popular that we keep being asked back and the trick really is not that I tell Irish jokes which I do that might put people off but uh, we have the Swiss what we call the Swiss finish so my wife who's so particular about cleaning and leaving everything perfect that people who walk into the house they hardly recognize them and then they say Oh, we want you back. Not only that, of course, we love the animals. We actually love dogs and cats. And so we say this is a holiday for them as well, and we treat them specially. This 
amazing. This is a whole other aspect that we need to talk about. So, so you don't own any property. No. You live out of a, a presumably a couple of suitcases. That's correct. Yeah. And how long have you been doing this? For about five years now. Wow. Yeah. How are things changing at the moment with, um, you know, the difficulty for COVID. people getting yeah housing and accommodation <clears throat> and all sorts of well, 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 the great thing is is that uh, uh, people are traveling locally. So a lot of people are going up to Broome or just going down to another town, maybe down south to Esperance. Yeah, so there's still actually quite a lot of movement. But I do uh, agree with you. I mean, I, I'm also, if I can call myself a socialist, and I, I think a lot about people. <clears throat> and that housing shortage, yeah, is and, and, and especially when you see so many empty houses down there with people investing in properties and uh, never using them. And, and you know there's a housing sh- uh, shortage. So one of the reasons why we're not trying to rent the places, we think there's people more needy than us that need them. Mm. Well, yeah. I mean, it's up to some of our uh, our leaders to take control of the investment side of things, I think. What's the point of housing being there empty? Well, it's just incredible. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, some of our leaders should actually look in the mirror. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... House sitting for five years around Dunsborough, and um, I've already met a few people in my office that have come across you. Uh, you've choreographed movement for the Bustleton Repertory Theatre. I did. And you're putting on a performance that you're going to be in. So when was the last time you put the tights on? Well, it, it did quite a long time ago. What I have been concentrating on in is performance art, so that's actually quite related. I use a lot of movement, but I've worked in art galleries, so I've actually done a performance at Bragg. Awesome. About a year ago, yeah. <clears throat> and they would love to have me back, but there's no money whatsoever, and there's no infrastructure. I'm not actually I'm not a money person, so that's that's not a problem. You have but, to eat. But there's you, well, we we both live off my pension. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And I drive a, a a Toyota Corolla, so we actually try to walk the talk. I mean, talk the walk. <laughs> <laughs> right. So um, now let's talk a little bit about dance of life because you've got some fabulous dancers in your performance. You've choreographed them, so it's um like you said, it's a bit of an art piece where you're taking the story of that dancer's life and putting it to movement. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. So, can you tell us about one of your dancers? <clears throat> well, I would maybe uh, perhaps the shyest one, who's uh, uh, Danielle Danielle Phipps, who's the Spanish dancer, and uh, she has this phenomenal technique. I often find that with Australian dancers, that they just have amazing movement because of the physicality and the the feeling of landscape and freedom that they actually have. Yeah, but they're not quite sure what it's for or what they're doing. Now, Danielle is taking so well to my direction, being able to speak about every nuance, you know, where do you look, especially in a Spanish dance, it's going to be to Ravel's Bolero, which is the most extraordinary piece of music. So that's 15 minutes long. And I really admire her application and how much she's open to, to learning. And it's become a wonderful collaboration with her because she really has the technique, but it's actually finding ways of giving it meaning and relating to her own life at the same time. And uh, that's been a very powerful collaboration. I'm, I'm, I'm delighted about that piece. And we've also got Lynn Boone, yes. who discovered contemporary at 20 years old in London. Yes. 
So what's her story? Well, she's a bit of a soulmate because uh, when I gave up classical ballet, I went to that very school in London, which had just opened. The London Contemporary School, and they called it Martha Graham Technique and Mess Cunningham and Jose Limon. These, these are the, the sort of classic uh, 20th century techniques of, of contemporary. It's changed now, of course. It gets more and more contemporary and things change. But these were the classic forms, yeah. Uh, and so you change the, classic, the classical body into a more contemporary way. And uh, so I went to that school in order to learn contemporary. Uh, they weren't very kind to me because uh, they. Uh, one of the things about contemporary is telling you out straight what they actually think. There's no uh, hiding behind the bush, yeah. So they would make fun of the classical dancer. Yeah, that's far too classical what you're doing. Yeah, but that's my training. I, I, I can't really get rid of it. I'd love to, but I can't. So, but in, I still took what I could out of that. And uh, then I joined a company afterwards which used these techniques. So I was lucky to be able to dance with them for a while before I retired from dancing. She'd study there. <clears throat> and so it was very easy to work with her in terms of um, her movement language, which actually came from those techniques. And uh, it, it, uh, that was delightful. And then I went in quite a bit to uh, her life story, which was an enormous struggle, l like it is. And now Alina's 66, and she sees herself as a dancer. And I think that's wonderful. I mean, she's still dancing. And she's dancing all over the place. So I have difficulties trying to get her to rehearsal <laughs> because she's doing a piece in Perth, doing a piece in Albany. and But it's actually a beautiful piece. So I call that piece... Uh, the, from the diary of a survivor mm. because when she told me her life story and what she'd been through which is really quite personal I began to think aha that's the point you are a survivor and in a way we're all survivors but the story of survival of any one person is so unique and so wonderful all right well then Caroline Jensen so she began dancing in South Africa yeah, well, she she actually was a teacher from very early on because her mother had a big school and I think her mother had a stroke and she had to take over the school. So she's this constant teacher and actually she's a beautiful dancer who didn't get much of an opportunity to dance because of uh, just running schools and now she runs the Dunsborough Ballet School. And I saw how much uh, talent she had and how much work she put in. I would help a little bit with the students when they're making their end-of-year productions. And I saw this and I said, so she was the first one I said Caroline it'd be lovely to have you on stage and to do a unique piece for you uh, and uh, she's taken like that like a duck to water and it's beautiful because then I, I'm working with a pure classical dancer who wants to do contemporary so I can take her into that area and then we can go back into classical as well and uh, she's, she's wonderful and so open because she's got a literary background and I looked at some of her poetry in order to create something unique for her. How long has it taken to bring the show together? Oh God, it's very difficult to tell. Uh, it would take months, yeah. Uh, maybe about six months since I started. And so I'd be doing lots of reading and looking at things. And then, of course, I'm designing everything. So I'm looking at a lot of visual stuff that actually fits as the concept. And uh, I am, I'm very honest with the dancers, too. I, I, I say at, at the beginning, yeah, I, can't, I, I don't know what I want, but I know what I don't want. <laughs> That's the story of my life. <laughs> 
It honestly is. I've never known what I wanted, but I know what I don't. No, what I mean by that is, is that if you're a choreographer, like many are, and you walk in, you say, it's this, it's this, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, yeah, and it's this, this, this. I don't believe in that way of working at all. So there's this collaboration where you, you actually, what I say is the dancers can give you much better ideas than you have. And that's how rich it becomes. So that's, and then if it doesn't work, you can say, no, I don't want that. I really want that, that you brought in there. Like this, and this is, this, this is the conversation and the dialogue of creativity, which I find very exciting. Now, Seamus, correct me if I'm wrong. Yes. But you've mentioned a couple of times about picking yourself up and dusting yourself off and starting all over again. Yeah. And, you know, at times in your life where people have been unkind, you know, the racism in yeah, London. Sure. Mm. Um, so from somebody that has, has lived, you know, a, a tougher and less privileged life than somebody else, because it's all relative, isn't it? How is it that you have maintained this sense of control and beauty and wonder for the world? How are you the person that you are? Like, what, what is it that um, makes your mind work to keep bringing you back to who you are? Well, I would say it's something very simple. It's actually a love of nature. And it goes uh, back to a word that's not enjoyed very much, to the spiritual if you look at some essences, I, I, I read a lot of Rumi, a Sufi poet from the 12th century, and uh, I look at what, what does that mean, you know, and including, yeah, trying to be kind to people. And uh, But mind you, now I appear to be like a saint. No, I've God, we know you're not a saint. <laughs> <laughs> you're a dancer. Oh, I've been through. A scallywag you, that grew up in Dublin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I can tell you, I, I worked with Nureyev, uh, the great Russian dancer, and he was no saint, I oh, can tell I you. Oh, I bet. Oh, my God. But it wouldn't be any fun if people were perfect. Well, it is true. It's impossible. It is true. You, you know, you, 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 you. I, I actually have uh, li little mantras that I say to myself. Yeah. So one of them is, um, I, I get my power from the universe. Even when I make mistakes and make a fool of myself, I can have a good laugh at myself. <laughs> this is the key. That is absolutely key. <laughs> and do you know what's good now is like I notice in myself. Um, that when I do get defensive, because I'm no saint, of and I bite, I take the bait when people are winding me yeah. up sometimes, and when I get defensive, you can almost sort of start recognising it now. And now I have this thing where I, like, I get defensive, and then all of a sudden I'm like, ooh, why? Why Why has this one got me? <laughs> well, I, I think actually when you get, when you actually can ask yourself a question, or when you actually can name anything, like you say, now I'm getting angry, and now I'm getting defensive. Then you start to be in control. But when you're sort of in the middle of being so angry that you, you think, oh, I don't know what the hell I'm doing now, yeah? Uh, but w once you name it, see, I believe in, in, in self-healing. So anytime you name anything, you're, be you're finding the answer. By the way, my wife is a psychologist. A ah. psychologist. <laughs> <So> <laughs> not that she can keep me in order all the time. <laughs> well, who would want to, Seamus? <laughs> this has been an absolutely wonderful chat. We've ended up in Croatia and Bosnia and talking about James Joyce and all sorts of areas that I didn't expect to go to. But one area that we haven't come back to, and this is why I put a note down because I can very much get on a tangent, rocks and your connection with nature. Yes. So when you try and explain why West Australia is so beautiful, 
I can't help but notice that it's all rocks. Like you've got the bungle bungles in yes. Penalula National Park. They're rocks. They're big, yeah. fancy, cool looking yeah. rocks. Karajini National Park. Yep. Amazing rocks. Yeah. The rocks in the southwest. Canal rocks. Yes. You know, Moses Rock. Rocks. But they're so amazing. They are. <laughs> so what draws you to rock? Well, I'm sort of, um, well, well just, I like trees as well. <laughs> so uh, uh, I'm actually interested in the fact that they're like sentinels and they have actually been there some millions of years and they've seen everything. So there's nothing new under the sun as we go back to that one. And, they've, uh, and they're constant. And of course, the water does uh, uh, rub bits off them and, it, you know, they they discolor with storms and all of this stuff. Uh, but it, it absorbs, and it's something actually really powerful because we know that uh, uh, we will die sometime. And the, the rock, of course, is, is almost ageless. And uh, that feeling that it's actually seen so much and uh, has suffered so much as well with storms and everything. And uh, so that's really what attracts me to them. And, of course, no, there is an aesthetic thing about the color of them here. I mean, those red rocks, the way the sun reflects in the afternoon off the rocks, you never see that anywhere. The sun is so special here, especially in the afternoon. Oh, I love talking about this with you. For me, the rock thing is a rock and water thing. Yes. So rocks are obviously formed and then due to whatever water is around at the time or perhaps ice or, you know, perhaps even magma or lava, um, you know, wears them down in various different ways to create the different shapes. So for me, rocks is all about that yin and yang, something so impossibly hard and then something liquid like water yep. and then the, the relationship that they have over time wearing each other away. You know, you look like... The waves crash onto the rocks and break themselves on the rock all the time, but the wave over millions of years wins out. Yes, it does. That, uh, yeah. Well, well, a lot of the, the philosophy we're talking about, like Zen and that, talks a lot about the flow of water and the power of water, how it can get through anything. Yeah, and that's that, that's wonderful. I also think about this relationship with the uh, metaphor for time itself, like how our lifespan is, say, a hundred years at the most. And uh, th that is, uh, th this process uh, with water and rock and uh, is happening over millions of years. And that's wonderful. It, 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 it says something. It's a bit like looking at the stars and you're wondering, you know, what's going on up there with those, those tr stars that are traveling for millions of years and they're millions of years away. It's the most wonderful thing. It actually does teach us a lot to be humble, I think. What a perfect point to finish up on, Seamus. Thank you so much for this beautiful chat and your time. Thank you so much. I do not know how we ended up there, but just listening back to it and editing it through, we really went on a wild ride. So what do you make of that sort of format? I'm sort of at this stage with the podcast thinking of doing maybe an in-depth interview like that with somebody around here who's just too interesting not to speak to and who doesn't really get the chance to, to speak like this and in depth. So one of those, and then also um, a bit of a highlights reel of the show, all the good bits that you might have missed out on. What do you reckon of that? Is that interesting for you? Please, honestly, send us some feedback on the social media because, you know, this is a working progress. This is, this is going places, and we want to build it together because I want it to be relevant for you. You know, this is Southwest Triple M. This is Southwest Stories. I only want to give you what you want. Bit of a people pleaser, I guess. 
But that wraps it up for today. There will be another podcast coming to you on Friday. And in the wise words of Bill and Ted, be excellent to each other. And from me, be excellent to each other and yourself.